So Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. This is God's word. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. This is God's word. The letter of Paul to Titus, just as a brief summary, one of the main themes of why we're going through Titus is because it carries this, uh, these two themes of doctrine and duty together. Doctrine is teaching what we must rightly understand about God, about who we are in relation to God, about the church, about salvation, about how we engage. There's teaching, that's the doctrine, and then there's the duty, which is our dutiful response to that, putting into practice the doctrine that then informs how we are to live. And Titus is just full of doctrine and duty together. And you can actually, uh, in one way, break it down into three sections, which are according to the chapter divisions. And chapter one is largely about doctrine and duty in the church, which is why Paul is very clear to say we need to establish leaders, elders, and they have to be there so that there is no false doctrine taught, but there is purity in the church. And then he moves on to chapter two and he starts talking about these household type relationships. So you have doctrine and duty, chapter one in the church, Doctrine and duty in chapter two in sort of the house or in household type relationships. So older women to younger women, older men to younger men, slaves to their masters or employers to employees. And then chapter three is then doctrine and duty in the world. So how we engage with those in the world. And chapter three starts off by getting into the meat of uh, how we are to be submissive to earthly rulers and authorities. We are to be submissive toward all those in places of authority. And as I mentioned when we began today, we're just going to focus upon really the first two phrases of verse one. So we're taking like two thirds of a verse, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. And we're going to kind of stop there because next week we're going to have the part two, which is talking about Uh, how we sort of engage with with the world as good citizens, being ready for every good work, being do-gooders. So uh, these two phrases are connected together, particularly because to be obedient uh, in the original language is really just one word, and that one word carries two words with it. And one of those words, if you're following me, is the word for ruler. So to be obedient here is specifically talking about being obedient to rulers. So it's very much connected to remind them to be submissive to rules and authorities. And then Paul is adding another layer to say, and to be obedient, it's connected. So this is what we are going to focus upon today. And this was uh, very important to a Cretan culture, because as we've seen, Cretans were notoriously unruly, insubordinate people. Paul addresses this in elders and then in household relationships, the need to not be insubordinate, the need to be obedient, to have self-control. Polybius, who was an ancient historian uh, in about the second or third century BC, wrote about 
Cretan culture. I mean, they really have a terrible reputation. Uh, all these people writing um, just horrible things about them, but it didn't come from nowhere. And he said, Cretans were constantly involved in insurrections, murders, and internecine wars, which is like wars where basically the one party just destroys each other. Uh, like it's not like you're fighting against another party, but even within the same political parties or armies, there's destruction. And this was Cretan culture. They seem to be an insubordinate, unruly people. Now, it's also very important for us today. Uh, we may not look exactly the same, but I think there are two particular reasons why it's important for us to understand our place of obedience and submission to the government, to earthly rules and authorities. And one of the first reasons is because we have witnessed over the last few years, just in COVID times, I think we can all agree that we have witnessed an increasing level of government mandates where they are sort of imposing um, mandates upon us for things like vaccinations, things like who we can and can't see, where we can and can't travel. There's even talk just recently of particularly in the ACT government of the ACT government trying to um, have more of control over religious bodies like churches in what they can and can't teach and sort of um, taking what would be doctrine and um, saying that this is going to come under hate speech now. And there's all sorts of things. And I, don't, I think it gets blown out of proportion a bit. But there's certainly a bit of an overstep from the government in certain areas. So that's the first reason. We've seen an increasing level of government mandates that I think many Christians feel have threatened their freedom. Uh, the second reason that this is very important for us, this idea of obedience to the government, is because in the scheme of the globe, if we think about the globe, the whole world, every nation, geopolitical nation, we here in Australia, in the Western context, have, I think, far more of a tendency toward anti-authoritarianism, mostly in a casual anti-authoritarian way than most. And we also have the ability to be insubordinate without any severe ramifications. Like we can, you see it all the time when politicians and the prime minister is doing his day out in the community and people can just berate him and throw stuff at him and not much is going to happen. Like you may get a little slap on the wrist, but you can pretty much give the prime minister, uh, you can spit in his face and just absolutely berate him and probably not much will happen. And there's many countries in the world where if you did that, it would be a death sentence. It would be prison most certainly. And that's just one example where we can be insubordinate without really any severe ramifications. And this conditions us in a particular way. So in this environment that we find ourselves in, where there are increasing mandates upon us, but there is also this sort of nature that we have developed where we can be, we can mock people in places of authority, we can speak against them, even to their face, without any severe ramifications. We have a lot of freedom in that area. And in this environment, how do we then understand this call to be submissive to rulers and authorities, or like Peter said in his letter, to be subject to every human institution? How do we understand 
that uh, before we look at the why of why we should submit to, to earthly authorities, of why uh, God has ordained it, that it would be in his word as a timeless truth to be obedient to earthly institutions. Before we look at why, just as a foundation, we should understand that submissiveness should not be unnatural for the follower of Jesus. I know that's a double negative. Submissive, a submissive posture shouldn't be unnatural for the follower of Jesus. Again, for two main reasons. The first is because we all submit to the Lordship of Christ. He has absolute dominion over every aspect of our lives and it should not feel unusual to submit. The second reason is that we are all called to submit to one another within the body by esteeming others as more than ourselves. I'm taking this from passages like Philippians 2, where Paul tells us not to have any selfish ambition, but to consider others as more important than you. Hold their views as more important. Of course, so long as it doesn't contradict anything in the Bible and wouldn't be uh, detrimental to their health or your health. But we're actually called to have this posture of constantly esteeming others. It's the opposite of our culture, which says self-esteem, have good self-esteem. The Bible says, no, don't have good self-esteem, have other esteem. Esteem others as more important than you are. And that should result in us, in a way, submitting to others, again, where it doesn't contradict God's word. And this is actually God's means to sanctify us because the more we submit to others, the more we esteem them, the less we promote ourselves and the less we promote ourselves, the more Christ is glorified in us and the more Christ-like we become. So we ought to have a posture of submissiveness about us in that sense where we are esteeming others as more important than ourselves. So when it comes to earthly authorities, a posture of humble submission should really be the default posture we have unless we are required to practice godly disobedience. Too many people have their default posture as antagonism and rebellion. Too many people have the default as that. That should not be the default posture for the Christian. We'll see from next week, Paul actually tells us to avoid quarreling. Literally, there's just one word for that. It means be peaceable. He's saying avoid quarreling. Don't have your default as an antagonistic person that's constantly mocking others and being very rebellious. That's not the posture of a follower of Jesus. That should not be. So this is just as a foundation. Submission should not be unnatural for the follower of Jesus. Now, why? Why must we submit to earthly authorities? Why should we submit to them? Uh, the first and simple reason we should submit because we are told to, because we're commanded. It should go without saying, but I feel like saying it. It's in the word of God, and that should be enough for us. We are told to submit to earthly authorities, so we submit. The second reason uh, we submit because God has established government to represent his desire for order. We read in the passages like in Romans, God institutes governments and God establishes governments, earthly governments, as a representation of his desire for order and to restrain evil. They are there to serve a purpose. Even wicked governments, um, in some sense, will keep 
order and God is a God of order. He desires order. Imagine if we did not have any sort of human institution governing society. It would turn to chaos. It would just turn to absolute chaos. Government restrains evil for the most part and keeps order. And it's a reflection of God's desire for order in society. So we submit to government because it is a reflection of God's desire for an orderly society. And we desire that. The third reason we submit to earthly authorities for God's sake. We do it for him. And to, to show this, we'll look at the two supporting passages uh, James read out in 1 Peter 2. So if you, you've got it on your sheet there, but otherwise in your Bibles, open up to 1 Peter 2. In uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 from verses 13 to 15, Peter says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, Peter knows who he's writing this to and when he's writing. He's, he's writing it to scattered Christians. They are exiles. They're displaced peoples throughout the Roman Empire. And this is just a few years. It could even be a year or two just before Emperor Nero begins lighting Christians on fire to light up his yard at night, blaming them for the great fire of Rome. And uh, there was a great persecution. And I think most people believe that Peter is writing this just a year or two, maybe three before Nero begins to do this. And people are still reading this and hearing Peter say, honor the emperor. Be subject to every human institution. But notice the key phrase in the passage Peter gives to tell us to submit. He says, for the Lord's sake. Do it for the Lord's sake. We don't submit for their sake. We don't ultimately submit for, for their sake. We serve a much higher power, a much higher authority that is sovereign over every human authority. We submit to earthly institutions for the Lord's sake, which firstly means that when you are doing it for the Lord's sake, you of course won't be doing anything that would then be disobedient to the Lord. You wouldn't do that because you're doing it for the Lord's sake. He's the ultimate authority. It also means that our submission to earthly authorities, our submission to the government will be a reflection of our submission to God. We're doing it for his sake. Again, we should have this posture of submissiveness, which is not passivity. We'll talk about that in a bit. So this means that our lives should not have this anarchist or rebellious flavor about them. We sh we're, not we're not anarchists. It's literally the opposite. Actually, that word for to be obedient is a word that takes one word, which means to be persuaded by archos. It's peith archos, which archos is ruler. And so this is saying to be obedient, so be persuaded by the rulers. And then anarchy is the total opposite of that. Anarchy is without or against ruler. So anarchy is, is the total opposite of what we as Christians should be. So we should not have this posture that is resistant to authorities or rulers. 
We are do-gooders. We'll talk more about this next week. It's common, like I remember in school, it was used as an insult of like a goody two-shoes or a do-gooder, but that's what we're called to be, do-gooders. That's what Peter says here. We are supposed to do good, which means be a good citizen. It carries the idea of being a good citizen, being a do-gooder. That's what we're supposed to be. We follow our suffering saviour. And this is where Peter then, just a few verses after this, goes in to the picture of Christ suffering under an unjust regime. And he suffered and we are called to follow this suffering servant who did not rebel against corrupt authority, but he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And in chapter 2, in verse 21 of 1 Peter, Peter says, so he uses the example of Christ and how he suffered under unjust circumstances and he didn't revile when he was reviled. He didn't retaliate. He entrusted himself to his father's will, him who judges justly. And Peter says, for to this you have been called. This is what you have been called to. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. It's not the glamorous call of you've been called to be a game changer and just change the world for the Lord. No, Peter's saying you've been called to suffer. And when you suffer under unjust circumstances, you're just following your Savior's footsteps. You're following in his way. We submit two earthly institutions for the Lord's sake. And our Lord has actually modeled what that looks like. Our Lord has given us the picture of what that looks like. And these themes are similarly given in Romans 13, where in Romans 13, a very common passage that people turn to when it comes to uh, obedience to earthly institutions. And in Romans 13 verses 1 and 2, Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. Paul is highlighting that God is absolutely sovereign over the earthly authority. He actually says they have been instituted by God. They have been placed there by God. So anyone resisting earthly authority without any valid reason of why their disobedience is actually obedience to God, if you are rebelling against an earthly institution and there's no valid reason for why, then you are resisting God. You're resisting what he has put in place. He has established the governments and we resist him. Whether... Uh, the governing authorities are wicked or noble. God is still sovereign over them. And he has given us countless examples of how he is still able to use wicked governments like the Assyrians, like the Babylonians. And he can use them to then judge other people that harm his people. Or he can use them to then judge his own people. He can use someone like Cyrus to then provide for his own people, this foreign king, God is sovereign over all of the governments. And he shows us that, particularly if you think of the classic example of Pharaoh, of a cruel Lord who is harming his people. And God specifically says to Pharaoh, 
For this reason, I have raised you up that I might show my glory in you. It's God saying, I, I raise you, Pharaoh, up, a cruel ruler, so that I would then in the end show my glory by destroying you. God is sovereign over every authority. And just as a, something related, but a little bit of a side point, if we grasp that our submission to earthly authorities is because God is sovereign over all of them. So we ultimately do it because we have a profound trust in him. We don't do it for their sake. We do it for the Lord's sake. Then there is a wonderful freedom that we can have. I think often people who really struggle with earthly governments feeling like they're restricted is because they have not grasped the freedom that comes when we submit to the Lord. The freedom that we have in Christ, our submission to Christ correlates with the freedom we have in Christ, which no earthly authority can ever take away. And surely that's why Paul and Silas, when they were imprisoned unjustly, what are they doing in prison? They're singing hymns to the Lord. They're not bickering and complaining. They're singing hymns to the Lord. Their eyes are totally fixed upon Christ. Unjust authorities on earth can never rob us of our heavenly joy, regardless of what happens. I think God has given us so many examples throughout church history of how people experience the most freedom under persecution. So we fix our eyes upon the God who is sovereign over every authority. Our submission to earthly authorities is for God's sake, which means that our submission to them, where it is not contradicting God's word, will reflect our submission to him. We have a posture of humble submissiveness. And where we have submitted to Christ's lordship, then our freedom is never restricted by earthly institutions. Now, this leads us to a crucial qualification, which I've alluded to already, that there are times where we must not submit to earthly authorities, of course. There are times where we draw the line and we do not submit to earthly authorities. So we must never mistake submission for passivity. Just like in marriage, a wife being called to submit to their husband is never a call for passivity to just bow uh, down to, to everything without ever raising any concerns, without ever exhorting her husband to godliness. It's not passivity. So our submission to earthly authorities is not simply passive. If governments forbid what God commands or command what God forbids, we disobey. It's better for us to obey God than man. We follow the same practice of the apostles. So our obedience to earthly governments will only ever be insofar as it is consistent with our ultimate authority, which stresses the importance of understanding the word of God, right? It stresses the importance of understanding what God says about obedience to him, lest we be presumptuous and end up resisting his authority because we're just so arrogant that we haven't taken the time to dissect scripture properly and we're just resisting because we have an arrogant, antagonistic posture. We should have a humble posture that understands the word so that we can practice good disobedience where governments call us to something that would contradict God's word. Now, this means that we submit to all other earthly laws and institutions insofar as they do not command what God forbids or forbid what God commands. 
So Christians should not speed. And you'll notice there is a speed limit coming into covenant. You'll notice that. Christians shouldn't speed. It's, an, it's, uh, it's not a good, it's not a good witness to, to Christ. It's not a good thing to have uh, in your system to constantly be disobeying uh, the laws. Uh, we should not cheat in any way on our taxes by claiming more than we ought. We're coming up to tax time now. We shouldn't do that. We should have a posture of obedience. We shouldn't, in the workplace, if you have flex sheets, we shouldn't fudge the numbers on that or do things that used to really annoy me where someone would get in and clock on at nine and then they would go out for a coffee for half an hour. No, you clock on when you actually start work. So don't clock on on your flex sheet at nine and then go have a half an hour conversation with someone and just socialize. There's a level of integrity that we ought to have. We should be a people of integrity, of obedience, because obedience to the law of God is fundamental to what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. It should be ingrained within us. We of all people should model what obedience to authorities looks like. We of all people should have that integrity. This idea of submitting only insofar as it is consistent with God's word is actually implied in the very word submission. Submission uh, is, again, a combination of two words and the main verb is this idea of a fixed order, like designating a fixed order. And then it's just a preposition that says to come under. So to come under the fixed order. Now, where does the fixed order come from? From God, from his authority. So we come under the fixed order, which means if you imagine that there is God and his word and he has fixed the order and we are down here and the earthly authorities are in between and we, we are always coming under the fixed order. It's fixed there. It doesn't move. So where earthly authorities begin to hover off and drift off into these areas that would cause us to come away from the fixed order, we don't move. We don't budge. We stay under the fixed order. But that will mean that there will be a whole host of things that earthly authorities may uh, put in place like certain speed limits that aren't necessarily contradicting the word of God. They're not explicit in God's word, but they still fall under that fixed order. So we obey. Just like me teaching, if you imagine that Christ himself, the word come flesh was standing behind me. And as I'm teaching here, I am teaching what is consistent with God's word. So insofar as I'm teaching what is consistent with God's word, it is as good as God himself speaking to you through the preaching of his word. And there may be things that I say that aren't explicit in scripture, but they may still be consistent that we ought to take as authoritative. But the moment I start drifting off into all of these new and fanciful ideas, you don't follow me, you stay with Christ. Same thing with earthly authorities. We come under the fixed order. So, Things like whether you feel about compulsory voting, all of these things that are not necessarily contradictive to the word of God, we obey. We come under that fixed order. But when governments begin to uh, 
threaten our ability to proclaim Christ as Lord, where they threaten our ability to uphold a biblical view of marriage, a biblical view of life, upholding the sanctity of life, the importance of even physically gathering together with the community, which has been very convicting for me recently, just thinking about times where so many churches, me included, actually were potentially disobeying the word of God and the call to not forsake the gathering of ourselves together in those moments where we were called to, to stay away. And that's another point for another time. I think it's, you know, it's still important to talk about, but there, there are these things which governments just cannot force us to do where they would compel us to go against the word of God. We submit to earthly authorities in every way as they come under this fixed order. I want to finish by giving two biblical examples of this. Uh, Common examples when you come across this topic from Daniel, from Daniel chapter 6 and then from Acts 4 and 5. So from Daniel chapter 6, don't worry about um, turning there, but I'll repeat the the story. So Daniel is, of course, in Babylon, uh, which for him is a constant reminder of the fact that his home country is destroyed and ruined and he has been exiled and he's now serving the very people that destroyed his hometown and basically took him captive to serve them. And he finds himself in a position of, of authority in quite a noble position And while Daniel is an official under, at this point, it's the now Mede uh, government who have taken over the Babylonians. And while Daniel is an official official there, some people set a trap for him. They don't like him. And so they basically uh, convince the king to issue this decree that says um, anyone who makes petition to any god for 30 days except for King Darius is to be fed to the lions. And then we read in Daniel 6 verse 10. When Daniel knew the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks as was his custom. Now, there are two overarching themes that I want to draw your attention to in this story. Because we remember that Daniel, in doing that, is eventually fed to the lions, though the Lord preserves him, but he is punished. And the things to note is, firstly, there is a recognition of God's sovereignty, which leads to a peaceful posture in Daniel. You you, you read that. There's a recognition of God's sovereignty, which leads to a peaceful posture. So Daniel does not overtly protest when this happens. He doesn't kick up a fuss and go straight to the king, which he could have. He had a pretty decent relationship He doesn't start a freedom rally. He doesn't start protesting. In fact, the text is actually very clear to just paint this picture of the very next thing Daniel does is what he was probably going to do anyway and go pray. And go pray uh, where he knew everyone would see. So that's the next thing. So there's first recognition of God's sovereignty, which leads to peacefulness. He doesn't protest. But then... The second overarching theme is there is no compromise in his allegiance to God. There's just no compromise. There's a a stubbornness. There's a godly stubbornness in his allegiance to God. 
So, as I said, the text is very clear to say when Daniel knew the decree was signed, he went off to pray. And if you think about it, Daniel could have prayed. Daniel could have kept his uh, prayer routine, but maybe just done it in a less public place where no one could know. And he could say, well, you know, Lord Yahweh, you know I still love you. I'm going to pray, but I'm just going to be sensible because, you know, if I don't do this, then it will mean more evangelistic opportunities for me or however you want to, you know, justify it. But he doesn't do that. He actually goes out the window and the text is very clear to say, as was his custom, everyone would have known Daniel again, midday prayer, whatever it is. He always does it three times a day, very routine. And he went to pray as a way to show my allegiance is with Yahweh. I'm never going to bow down in my allegiance to Yahweh. Never. Feed me to the lions. Daniel gives this wonderful picture of civil disobedience whilst maintaining a humble and submissive posture. There's this peaceful posture. He doesn't kick up a fuss. He just goes about continuing his worship to Yahweh. We see this in the second example in Acts 4 and 5. In Acts 4, Peter and John are arrested. They're taken before the Jewish authorities and they are told not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus They are beaten and then they rejoice that they were considered worthy to suffer for Christ's name. They then go and they pray for boldness before the Lord after telling the Jewish authorities, well, we can't help but speak of all the things we have seen and heard. In Acts chapter 5, they are arrested again for doing the same thing, for talking about Jesus. And then in prison, an angel releases them from prison And what's the next thing they do? They go straight back into the temple and they start telling people about Jesus. So the authorities then arrest them again. They demand answers for their disobedience. And Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. We have to. Same things to note. There is a recognition of God's sovereignty which leads to a particular peacefulness. We see that in Peter and John. When Peter and John are in prison, the other believers don't try and bust them out. Peter and John don't try themselves to bust out. They don't complain against their unjust imprisonment. They actually rejoice that they were considered worthy to suffer. Basically, if God wants them out of prison, he will do it. And he shows that by just sending an angel to bust them out of prison. The second theme, there is no compromise in their allegiance to God. They never compromise a single bit on their task of proclaiming Christ. They just go straight back to where they were, keep proclaiming Christ, keep making known what we've seen and heard, and God will do the rest. He will honor our faithfulness. They show the same integrity as Daniel. Nothing other than death will prevent them from finishing their task, from fulfilling their duty of proclaiming Christ, of being faithful witnesses. So these are wonderful examples for us. Submission to earthly authorities is not black and white. I think we've seen that. Submission to earthly authorities is not black and white. There's not a particular rule book that we can then look to every single time. There are principles that we have to take. And there may be moments... In the near future, who knows? I don't want to be a doomsday 
guy and, and uh, try and paint this picture that we're so hard done by here. There are many governments that are far more cruel than our government, but the reality is there may be times for us where we will be called to practice civil disobedience, where we will be called to uh, say we must obey God rather than men. And I believe it will really be a refining moment for the church because we are such a comfortable society and we can hold, we can claim to hold to views. But when you're threatened with being thrown to the lions, will you hold to that view? Will there be compromise? Will you fudge the definition of a few words? Like when someone asks you for your, uh, what you hold to in uh, your understanding of marriage, whatever it may be, will you try and just use some very manipulative language that can sort of keep somewhat of the idea but lose the offense? Whatever it may be, or simply proclaiming Christ as Lord telling people that there is a hell. There is a day where everyone will stand before God and face judgment. And we are here as witnesses in the in-between time of Christ's first and second coming. And we are here to proclaim that there is a way for salvation. There is a way. Christ has made a way and we are all called to turn to him. So there may be moments for us where we will be required to exercise extremely careful discretion in how we respond to the government. But what we can clearly see from Scripture that is undeniable is that our default posture must never be anarchy. Our default posture should not be antagonism. We should not be looking for those opportunities. But that will never be at the cost of absolute allegiance to Christ and what he has called us to. It will never compromise our allegiance to Christ. What we're going to do now as we reflect upon those things is, is take the Lord's Supper. And I want to just reread over our passage uh, that we went over in 1 Peter chapter 2 uh, to help us to see the example that Christ has given us in submission to unjust authorities. Jesus was submissive to unjust authorities. And I, I do believe that, that if the Lord is to refine us, then he will call us to actually be real with what we profess rather than play little Christian games and call ourselves and wear the label and never actually have opportunities to be very clear that our allegiance is to Christ and Christ alone. And when we have those opportunities, we will need to cling to the model that Christ has given us. Peter says, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Note that he's saying, actually, this is, this is grace from God. Literally is the translation. This is grace from God. You suffer for good and you endure. That's grace from God. That's a gracious thing from the Lord. That's a gift for you. 
For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Christ gives us this example of submission to the authorities. And he was very clear to say before Pilate, you would have no authority if it had not been given to you from above. And if I wanted, I could call legions of angels to just destroy you now. Like that. But he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Christ entrusted himself to the Father's will. And before you say, well, that was Jesus accomplishing redemption for the forgiveness of sins, which we are not called to do. Peter specifically says, this model is what you have been called to. You must follow in his steps. The suffering servant. You follow in these steps. So let's just pause and and take a moment now to reflect upon uh, the weight of this, of, of what happened when Jesus was before the unjust authorities and he entrusted himself to him who judges justly in order to take our sin upon himself to be hung in excruciating fashion so that we would receive forgiveness of sins, new life in Christ, and we would also be able to always look to his example for us to follow when we are before unjust authorities, when we are called to practice civil disobedience, when we are called to suffer for good. We look to Jesus because what Christ did on the cross, what he did by his body and blood shed for us, he purchased something for us that no earthly ruler can ever take away. He purchased something tremendously wonderful, incomparably marvelous that no earthly authority can ever take away. Whether you are in chains, whether you are facing death, no one can take away the freedom that we have in Christ and the assurance of our heavenly reward. The day where we will be finally reunited, we will see Christ as he is and we will be like him. We fix our eyes upon that. 